Thank you, Shauna Lee, for doing a great job of reading that, and thank you all for having your Bibles open and following along. You already have your Bibles open to Acts 7, so let's pray and get right at it. Lord, we do thank you for your word. At the onset of this sermon, we acknowledge that there are moments where reading your word can sometimes feel like a, a long haul. But we also acknowledge that it's in those moments that we're reminded that the problem is not with your word, it's with us. Renew our hearts, recalibrate our affections, deepen our conviction that every word in these scriptures is profitable and from you. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit now that leads us into all truth, confirms and strengthens us in goodness, and convicts us of the areas where we must repent. Have your way with this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bible's open to Acts chapter 7. Let's get at it. Today we're looking at the account of the very first Christian martyr, and his name is Stephen. That's right. This is the very first person who died explicitly for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, refusing to recant and take the easy road. Now the word martyr, for us, means someone who dies for their faith. But the literal Greek word martyr simply means witness, to bear witness. And this word, martyr, witness, lies right at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian man or woman. You'll recall back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus' final promise to the disciples in Acts chapter 1 was that he was about to ascend into heaven. His culminating work on the cross finished. He was going to send the Holy Spirit. Do you remember this back in Acts chapter 1? And he was going to send the Holy Spirit with a direct result. That these disciples would be his, say it again, witnesses. That's right. So from the beginning, from the commissioning and sending of the Holy Spirit, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, so it has ever been. For those whom God saves in Jesus, we have been witnesses. Now the apostles, the very first 12, they were witnesses in a particular and unique way. We saw that when they had to replace Judas with Matthias, right? One of the qualifications was that these original 12 had to have been eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. So they were witnesses in a particular way. But every disciple of Jesus ever since has been set aside for saving from before the foundation of the world by the Father, has been purchased for saving by the blood of the Son, has been given the gift of faith to believe and converted and born again by the Spirit and empowered to be witnesses to Jesus. Witnesses to the gospel, Jesus says, to be my witnesses. Now, one of the stumbling blocks to Christian faith, one of the reasons that it is called foolishness, by non-Christians, but actually it's also one of the struggles that some Christians have along the way in their journey, is this simple question, what do I have to do 
What do I contribute to my salvation? Now, the central message of Christianity is that you and I contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation. Our salvation is all from God, it's by God, and it's to God. Our salvation is his work from beginning to end. That's why we call it grace. Now look, this is a bit of a stumbling block to those of us who've come to Christian faith through self-help movements. Because we think Christian faith is good and great and grand, and I get it, I'm saved by grace, but there's got to be a little something that I contribute, right? Eh, wrong. The gospel is grace. The good news of Jesus Christ is this. That because of God's saving work, we do not get what we deserve, and we get what we do not deserve. That's the core message of the Christian faith. Our response to that saving work of God in Jesus, having done nothing to earn it, is humble joy, deep gratitude and bearing witness, telling others about the grace of God in Jesus that has saved a wretch like me. That's what it means to be a witness. Now, perhaps you would say this morning, I have experienced the joy and also sometimes the persecution that comes with bearing witness to Jesus. You've been a Christian for a day, a year, a decade, ever since St. Paul. And you say, I've, I've been a witness to Jesus, and certainly there have been moments where people receive the gospel with joy, and that's wonderful. I tell them about Jesus, and they're fired up about it. But there have been many other times where I bear witness to Jesus, and it's met with hostility. And you say, well, if it's good news that God has saved his people in Jesus, not anything that they merit or deserve, simply out of his grace and out of his love and out of his doing, if that's such good news, then why is it sometimes met with hostility? Why is it sometimes that when we bear witness to Jesus, we're met with ire and acrimony? Well, St. Paul talks about this when he's starting out his letter to the Corinthian church, the first letter we call it 1 Corinthians. And he gives us a framework for thinking about this question. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the message of the gospel, this message that we as Christians bear witness to, he says that it is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's what he says. He then unpacks that and he says, this message that we carry with us, this message that we bear witness to, it's folly because it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. What Paul is explaining for it to us in 1 Corinthians, he's saying, okay, you're a Christian man or woman. You carry with you the message of the cross. You bear witness to Jesus 
and yet you'll find that it is an affront to the figurative worldviews of both the Jews and the Gentiles. That's why it's met with hostility. You see, back when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, the Gentiles were typified as people who knew how the world works. And the Jews were a different category. They were people who knew how God works. Two distinct worldviews with distinct and different objections to the good news of the gospel when we bear witness. When we bear witness to the Gentiles, if you were, as a category, they will meet the gospel witness with ire because it seems like folly. That's what Paul says. You're going to go out, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're going to bear witness to Jesus, you're going to tell them the message of the cross, and there's a category of people that Paul calls the Gentiles. They think they know how the world works, and so you're going to tell them the gospel, and they're going to say, that's just folly and Stupidity, it's foolishness. They're going to say things like, you're telling me that there is a personal God? Have you ever seen him? What does he look like? You know, the, the Gentile worldview, if you will, those who think they know how the world works, uh, they may be fine with God as an energy source or as an abstraction or as a first cause, but the moment you begin to witness to Jesus and say, no, no, there is a personal God who fully reveals himself as Jesus, that's where they're going to say, well, that's just foolish because they know how the world works. They're going to reject your gospel witness because they're going to say things like, there can't possibly be a God who holds sway over everything. The world is just the consequence of random chance, right? Materialistic randomness. It all just sort of happens and it unfolds and that's just the way it goes. And you're like, no, no, the gospel that I'm bearing witness to, there is a God and he holds sway over everything and he reveals himself in the person of Jesus, your Savior. But when you bear witness to the Gentiles, those who know how the world works, they're going to think it's foolishness because they're going to say, who are you to tell me that I need saving? That's one category. The second category, and those are the ones that Paul calls the Jews, just as the Gentiles think that they know how the world works, the Jews are those who think that they know how God works. They've got it all figured out. They've got God in their neat little tidy boxes, and they're not going to reject your gospel witnessing for the same reason as the Gentiles. They're fine with the existence of a God. They may even be fine with their interpretation of a God from Scripture. But they will have a massive problem with your gospel witnessing. It will be to them a stumbling block because they can't accept the doctrine of grace. These are two of the categories that will persecute you in your gospel witnessing. But God in Jesus has saved you. He's caused you to be born again by the Spirit. 
He's equipped you and empowered you to be his witnesses. So here we are in Acts chapter 7, verse 1. We are only weeks into the forming of the earliest church. And already they're faced with persecution. Look at verse 1. Stephen is put on the hot seat. The high priest says to him, Are these things so? Now in fairness, we've read back in Acts chapter 6 that really what's happening here is Stephen is being railroaded with false accusations, with a defamed character. But if you're a Christian man or woman who's ever borne witness to Jesus, that's not going to seem strange to you at all. First of all, it's a consistent witness of Scripture that when you bear witness to Jesus, you will be met with false accusations. You will be met with attacks on you personally. It's true in Scripture, but it's also probably true to you from experience. And in today's passage, as it unfolds, we will see our response when our faithful witness to Jesus gets us in hot water. So let's have at the text. I want to deal with verses 2 to 53 in one big chunk. And everyone said, Amen. Stephen is asked this direct question. The charge against him is the charge of blasphemy. We saw that back in Acts chapter 6. It's a charge that demands a sentence of public execution by stoning. Stephen knows it. He knows the stakes of this moment. His very life hangs in the balance when the high priest points his finger and says, Are these things so? And Stephen gives a long, sweeping answer that is rooted in and pulls together all of salvation history. He begins with Abraham, Joseph, Moses. He's hitting all of these high points. And what was the point when he was showing these guys these things from Scripture? What was the consistent message? He was saying, our fathers have consistently erred. They've consistently clung to the externals and missed the point of God. And yet God remains faithful even to them. Wasn't that the point of Stephen's story? But I want to look at this more closely because Stephen is being hauled up short. He's being asked, are these things so? And you notice that Stephen does not give a personal defense. He doesn't approach this answer by saying, look, the terms of this entire discussion and all these charges, they are unfair, they are unfounded, they are untrue. Here are the ten reasons why you guys are railroading me and I shouldn't even answer your questions. Instead, Stephen seizes this as an opportunity from God to bear witness to Jesus from Scripture. And that's our first point. Right here in these 50-some verses, 
we see an example, a model, a paradigm for our own witness. Look, there are not many in this room who will ever be faced with the possibility of execution for our Christian faith. That's true. Perhaps at most, when we have to bear witness to Jesus, we are faced with the consequence of an awkward conversation or a maligned character or being uninvited to a party. How do we deal with it? Well, Stephen bears witness to Jesus through Scripture. Look, this applies for us, right? If we are going to do a similar thing, we have to evaluate our own convictions around the Word of God. It begins with a deep conviction that the Bible is, in fact, the written Word of God. You ever think about that? We treat it so flippantly. Look, when we were planning out this Sunday's service and we looked at it and I was like, I think we need to go all the way from chapter 7, verse 1, all the way to chapter 8, verse 1. And we were discussing it as a staff and we thought, man, that's a long reading. But then we were talking about it and we said, yeah, but it's the Word of God. You know, that whole reading that Shauna Lee did, it took like eight minutes. If you think that that's a long time to listen to the Word of God, don't ever look at your weekly screen time reports on your iPhone. Are we truly convinced that what we have here is God's Word written? Well, that's where it starts. Second conviction we need not only is it the Word of God, but that the Word of God is, as the writer to the Hebrews said, living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. There is no better way to give an answer and bear witness to Jesus Christ than by the Word of God. Because it is living, active, and sharp. The third conviction that we need to revisit, if we believe it's the Word of God, if we believe it's living, active, sharp, and at work, are we convinced that the Word of God is good, that it's safe? And are we convinced that the Word of God is all about Jesus from cover to cover? Well, if we are, then like Stephen, any witnessing we do will be rooted in the Word of God. That's how Stephen answered. I think this needs a little bit of unpacking, so let's talk about it for a second. First thing I want to deal with is this statement that the Word of God is good. When you read the Bible, do you really believe that what you have there is God's best for humanity and for the cosmos that he created? Do you believe that the God for whom this is his word, truly has the best for you in mind. How you ought to live, what you ought to value, what you ought to abhor and reject and turn away from. Do those things in scripture feel to you like a burden and like, um, like a, a domineering parent who won't let you do fun things? Or do you fundamentally believe that the word of God is good 
and good for you. I think sometimes the Word of God doesn't feel good, especially in our upside-down world that prizes vice and debauchery and scorns anything virtuous. The good word of God comes along and you say, well, that's not good. Well, we begin as Christians with this truth that our creator made a world and he made us. And in his word, we have what is best for human thriving. If we're convinced that the word of God is good, then we will use it not only in our own lives, but in our witnessing to others. I'm always encouraged. When I talk to Christians in our church, sometimes new Christians, who are navigating their life in Christ. And in that process, they come to a juncture where they have to make decisions. And they end up making countercultural decisions believing that God's best is what's best for them and for their future. That's what it means to believe that the word of God is good. Second thing is we believe that the word of God is safe, right? That's why we use it for witnessing. It's good and it's safe. Now, so much of what people experience of the word of God feels unsafe because it makes us feel uncomfortable. But perhaps it makes us feel unsafe and uncomfortable because the truth of God's living and active and good word is challenging us at our deepest core. It's confronting us with God's best in the face of our own sin and calling us to repent and change our ways. Finally, we find that the word of God is safe because it's in the word of God that we find our only rescue for our hell-bound souls. Look, that's the kind of conviction around the word of God that shapes a response like Stephen's. You want to bear witness to Jesus. You don't respond by defending yourself and trying to expose hypocrisy. You don't respond by the latest thing that you've seen on Christian TikTok. You respond by the word of God because you're deeply convinced that it is God's word. It's living and active. It's good and safe. And in it, it's all about Jesus. So Stephen answers these charges with the word and the word only. A few years back when Billy Graham passed away, I was struck by this simple truth in his preaching. By the way, I think Billy Graham was the greatest evangelist of the 20th century, right? And his preaching followed this simple pattern, if you listen to it carefully. He would be appealing to an arena full of people, and he would say things that are true from a secular perspective. He would set out these truisms from the culture, and then he'd say, but the Bible says, right? And he'd just do that all, all, all the time. He'd say, look, this is what the world is telling you. This is what the world's telling you should do with your life. But this is what the Bible says. 
And in this simple bearing witness to Jesus with a deep conviction that the Bible is the word of God, hundreds of thousands of people heard the gospel and were saved. So you're thinking, okay, R.D., so if that's true of Stephen and that's true of Billy Graham, should I only answer my friends, my family, my co-workers with Scripture? Should I just quote Scripture to them all day? Well, the answer is yes, but not exactly. Okay? I want you to note that in Stephen's sermon, he quotes Scripture directly occasionally, but the majority of his answer is actually just telling the biblical stories in ways that his audience could understand. He's preaching here to Jews who are well acquainted with what we call the Old Testament. And so he gives them an overview of the story and he tells them about God's work in salvation history using cultural touch points that they can understand and occasionally quoting scripture. So what does this mean for our witness to Jesus? It means that we need to become so steeped in the biblical account that our answers when we bear witness to Jesus are formed by the logic of Scripture, that our answers are formed and shaped by the warp and woof of the logic of Scripture, by the very grammar of the gospel. We will patiently listen to questions or even accusations from the world. We will recognize the points of departure from a biblical worldview. That's key. And then we bear witness to Jesus by identifying the underlying false narratives in what people are saying and believing. And then replacing them with the logic of Scripture. Look, when you do this, most objections that you're going to hear um, are based on a couple of premises. When you bear witness to Jesus from Scripture by hearing what people are saying, identifying the false narrative, and then addressing it with the narrative of Scripture, that's what Stephen's doing. In today's world, you're going to be met with objections that God does not exist. Right? That's the most obvious one. You're going to be met with an objection that Jesus can't possibly be Lord. He's a good teacher, he's a prophet, he's a hippie, whatever. And you're going to be met from religious people with objections to the doctrines of grace. Stephen is asked the question, are these things so? And he answers from Scripture. He's bearing witness to Jesus from Scripture. But this argument also cuts the other way. Friends, if you ever hear anyone if you ever hear me or anyone who stands in this pulpit trying to bear witness to Jesus from their own opinion, ignore it. The opinions of man have some inherent common grace and wisdom. There's maybe something to learn. It's why I read secular authors all the time. But they don't have the authority of the word of God. So Stephen just answers with scripture. Okay, that's our first point. Our second one, verses 54 to 60. Here's where it gets spicy, right? This is where Stephen, 
fails the seeker-sensitive test. Look at verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked people, you're uncircumcised in your hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and didn't keep it. So look, we see here another example. The first thing is, in our witnessing to Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, like Stephen, we appeal to Scripture. It's the Word of God. And secondly, we see that there may be moments where winsome speech is the order of the day. The Bible teaches us that a soft answer turns away wrath. Jesus taught us to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. I think far too often Christians get that one reversed. You know, we're mean as serpents and dumb as turtle doves. But anyway, there is a place for a winsome, soft approach. But when the stakes are high and the chips are down, what do you do? I know far too many times that more than I'd care to admit in my own life, I have approached witnessing to Jesus with what I would have claimed was a winsome, nuanced approach. I would have said, look, I'm just trying to take a wise tact to bearing witness. Um, I want the person to know how much they're loved so that they know what I have to say. What is that thing people say? Things like that, you know? And I'd have said that I was trying to be wise and careful, but Actually, in those moments, perhaps you've experienced this too. If I'm honest, it was just cowardice. It was a lack of confidence that the Word of God does the work by the Holy Spirit. It was me just wanting to be liked. Stephen's application of this historical text of Israel results in his lynching. We're told in these verses that the crowd rises up and cuts his sermon short. They kill him. You notice how Peter, uh, Stephen's um, sermon is, is lacking in a developed Christology. That's because when he got to the point of saying, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, right? The crowd was like, we've heard enough. They cut his sermon short and they picked up rocks. Now, last night I was out with a couple of people from church and I, they were asking me about the sermon this morning and I said, well, you've got to come to hear it. But then I said, one of the things was this, this sermon by Stephen was cut short because he was stoned. And one of the guys last night said, yeah, let that be a lesson to you, R.D., if you preach too long. No rocks in the place, right? Verse 51, Stephen uses three words to describe these people that appear nowhere else in the New Testament. The first one, verse 51, you are stiff-necked. Literally what he says to them in his witness to Jesus is, you guys are 
so stiff-necked that you can't even turn your head appropriately to see or to hear the truth that God has given you in the law. That's what he's saying. You're stiff-necked. He says you are uncircumcised with respect to your hearts and your ears. Well, this is something that I think we lose in our current context. Man, you don't understand how insulting it would have been to a Jewish person to be told that they were uncircumcised. They were like the pork-eating Gentiles, right? They're filthy. And not only are they uncircumcised, but they're uncircumcised at the deepest level. Their ears and their hearts, that's the accusation. So then, as it relates to your relationship with God, you are no different than the Gentiles. That's what Stephen said to them. And he finished with the final slap. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He says, you think that you're opposing me. He said, you think that you're opposing this little group of us who are bearing witness to Jesus, but you're actually opposing God. Verse 54, the crowd is infuriated. They ripped, it literally sawn through their hearts. They have this visceral emotional reaction of anger. They are enraged and wanted to kill him. They grant Stephen no due legal process. Instead, they break out in mob justice. They take this verdict into their own hands. They pick up rocks. Verse 54, Stephen is once again filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verses 55 to 56, the heavens open. Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he, Stephen, said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What then unfolds for Stephen is this similar pattern to the Lord Jesus Christ and his execution. A reference to the Son of Man and a forgiving of the very people who executed him. Verse 56. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We know from the scriptures that Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God ever since he ascended into heaven. We know from all of the scriptures that he will remain seated until he returns to be our judge, to judge the earth. And yet here when this faithful first martyr is about to fall asleep, the Lord Jesus rises and stands. What's going on here? Well, you know, we're not told exactly why in Scripture. It's not expressly told to us. But we can infer it from the context. Perhaps the Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated for all of eternity at the right hand of authority of God, the very first martyr is about to fall asleep and be transcended into glory, and he rises and stands up out of respect. Maybe that's what it is. 
like you would rise up when any honored dignitary enters the room. Or maybe it's something else. The son seated in this posture of ruling authority over the cosmos. We're told that on the last day, he will come to judge the earth. That's when he will rise. Could it be that Stephen actually caught a glimpse of the last day? I want you for a moment to imagine a forensic setting, a courtroom. This is not an earthly court, but it is a heavenly court. And Stephen gets it because he never got a proper earthly court, did he? I want you to imagine and put yourself in those shoes. So you are sitting in the heavenly court. And the judge is seated up on the bench in the position of power and authority. He is the judge. He's going to determine the outcome of the case. The prosecution rises up and reads all of the charges against you and builds the case for why you deserve death and hell. You look over and you see that the defense attorney is notably absent and dread begins to wash over you until the moment that the judge stands from his position of authority, descends from the bench, and says to the court, it's all true and more, but I have paid the sentence that's his. I've paid the sentence that's hers. Friends, I think that's a picture of what we see here. Your sentence being passed on to the judge. Stephen's and your heavenly judge stands before the court of heaven. He steps down from the judgment seat and shows the very nail scars on his hands and his feet. Stephen is welcomed into eternity, not because of his faithfulness in this moment as a martyr, but because of his faithful Savior. That's why Paul says in Romans 3 that God in Jesus is both just and justifier. The judge has stood. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of this execution. Stephen died. But we're introduced to St. Paul. That's who Saul later becomes. Look, if you look at this from the perspective of Stephen, his faithful witness didn't lead to his temporal deliverance, but instead it led to death and to glory. From a worldly perspective, if you look at the story of Stephen, it looks like an apparent loss. And yet, as the story unfolds, we're going to see that this moment of faithful witness of, of Stephen that appears to be a loss will in time become the greatest victory of the church. St. Paul. This unintended result of Stephen's faithfulness. Saul, who will later be redeemed and renamed Paul, goes from being the greatest enemy of God, Jesus Christ, and the gospel 
to the very means by which any of us who are Gentiles could have any claim to being Christians at all. Saul was standing there. He is the means that God used to bring Christian message and gospel from the ancient Near East, spread it throughout the known world. Now, friends, this is a truth for Stephen and for you and me. Even when unfair, unjust, miscarriage of justice based on false accusations, lies, and misrepresentation, you and I are still called to be witnesses to Jesus, like Stephen. But like Stephen, our job is not to control the outcome. Sometimes you will bear witness to Jesus, faithfully using Scripture in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will be vindicated in the end. Other times, you will bear witness to Jesus, faithfully using Scripture, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you will be figuratively murdered. Your name, your reputation. And your only job from the Lord is faithfulness. You will be my witnesses. The outcome is in his hands. And like Stephen, for you, the temporal outcome immediately might seem bad. But it may actually turn into something far greater than you could ever imagine. Stephen bore witness to Jesus. He was stoned to death. But what Saul witnessed on that day, God used as the seed and the start of a process that would lead to his conversion and his saving and his calling to be a witness to the Gentiles. This is the conversion that we're going to see in several chapters of the greatest witness to Jesus Christ ever in the history of the world. Saul, standing there, watching Stephen die. This means for you and for me that as we are witnesses to Jesus, you might not see the fruit of it immediately. It might feel like a whole lot of death. But friends, remember, your wife is watching. Your husband is watching. Your children are watching. Your co-workers are watching. And who's to say how God will use your faithful witness to redeem the persecution that you're experiencing by bringing out about a Saul-St. Paul-like conversion in those who are watching? Who's to say it will come of it? That's the type of faith that allowed Stephen to face his stoning like his Lord. And that's how you and I can endure hardship and false accusation for the gospel. This belief that nothing, absolutely nothing, is beyond the redemptive scope of God's goodness. He can take what appears to be the unmitigated loss of Stephen being stoned and use it to bring about the conversion of St. Paul. Jesus is alive. You are his witnesses. Don't ever let the enemy of your soul tell you that a moment of it is wasted. Trust that God will be glorified in your persecution. 
and use it beyond your wildest imagination. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithful witness of Stephen. God, we pray that such an extreme case would never come upon us, that we would never be forced to bear witness to Jesus in ways that would result potentially in the loss of life. But we do pray that in the ways that we are persecuted, that we would be found faithful witnesses, trusting that you are redeeming it for good and using it in ways that we cannot even imagine. We pray this in your name. Amen.